Hello, guys, and welcome back to a new episode of the Glove Sound Podcast. We're your hosts, Marcus Sundin, and alongside me is Alexander Brahms, as always. Today, we're welcoming back a previous guest of the podcast. We have Michael Quinn back on the podcast. And today, we're going to talk about how goalkeepers perceive the world differently. And Michael did a study upon this that actually got published in The Guardian as well. So uh, me and Alex want to talk a little bit about how the episode went um, here today. So uh, Alex, how do you think the podcast went? I think it was really good. Um, nice to have a, another well-spoken uh, British lad on it. Uh, sometimes we have some uh, different accents in here and we might have a little bit ourselves as well. Uh, but it was really good uh, and interesting um, podcast. We we talked about his study and everything uh, within then and how sometimes you can apply this study into uh, to training drills and so on. So and there's also something for coaches out there and something for, for you goalkeepers listening uh, I actually participated in the study. I forgot because it's like three years ago. But uh, when I remember back, it was really interesting to be a part of. And you can hear more about it in uh, in this podcast. Of course, we also talked about uh, goalkeeper gloves and a little bit of the nerdy side. And then Marcus, he was he was talking about the sport he was playing. What is what is the sport he's playing? Yeah, it's it's Gaelic football, and mm-hmm. uh, not a lot of people know about that sport unless you are from from the area Michael is from, and uh, I only know of the sport, as I mentioned in the episode as well, because of previous teammates that are from the same area as, as Michael. So uh, he shared a little bit about how he learned from Gaelic football, which is the sport he, he played as well, and used that to become a better goalkeeper as well. And then we obviously talk about how playing different sports can, can benefit us becoming better goalkeepers as well, not only playing goalkeeping throughout your whole life, but trying different sports and uh, taking what you learn from those sports and, and use that within goalkeeping as well. So uh, yeah. it was it was a it was a good episode. We had uh, a previous guest in. It's always fun to to bring back um, guys uh, that we've had on before. And uh, I actually mentioned as well in the podcast, but I think it was on the first season. So uh, back then it was it was something new. And as he mentioned as well, it, we we gone a long, a long way since then. So uh, it's always it's always nice to look back at what happened and then see where we are where we are now. Exactly, uh, exactly. So guys out there, uh, stay on this, and uh, we'll see you in a few seconds after this. Cheers. Cheers, man. Thanks, Emil. Great to be on. And uh, yeah, it's been a while. So looking forward to getting chatting about. It's amazing to have you back. A lot of things have happened since we have you on the last time. We had a lot of amazing feedback. Um, if I remember correctly, I think you were in the first season or maybe the second. I think you actually were in the first season. So it's it's a while back when uh, we were rookies. But today we want to talk a little bit about one of the few studies you, you've made Um talking about how goalkeepers perceive the world differently than, than outfield players, which I found very, very interesting. Um, but before we jump into that, we always have our five questions here on the podcast. So whenever you're ready, I'll ask you four questions and you just answer as quick as possible. Perfect. Sounds good. 
Here we go. Gloves on or gloves off? Gloves on. Favorite goalkeeper of all time? Ooh. Noir. Manuel Noir. Has to be. Favorite goalkeeper you have played with? Oh, uh, Roberto Sanchez, the Chelsea keeper. Oof. Mm. And lastly, most important aspect within goalkeeping? Um, I'm going to say mentality. Mentality. Love that one. Um, you you threw a bump there. Can we go a little bit back? You've played with Sanchez. Yeah, I played with him is a bit of a stretch. I got to train with him. So um, back when I was playing a few years ago, I was at a club called Berry. They're in League One in England. Um, sadly, they went out of business while I was there. So the club went bust. Um, all the players we had to find new places to go. And I was just very lucky. The manager at Rochdale at the time, a guy called um, Brian Barry Murphy, was the was the manager, and he he heard about me, obviously being without so much train. So he let me come in and train with Rochdale when Bobby Sanchez was on loan there. And he was an absolute specimen. Um, six foot six, quick across the ground, technically incredible. Um, yeah, you could tell he was just going to go on and be a superstar. That's that's amazing, Michael. Can you uh, just shortly, what would you say? Like, why do you think he stands out? He obviously, he's made it. You know, he's made it as a pro goalkeeper. So uh, what do you think? Well, you have had that inside you've you've trained with him what do you think uh makes him different from from the average goalkeeper i suppose look something that none of us can well you can kind of control to a certain extent i think he is quite gifted in terms of his height his reach um his speed uh he works incredibly hard as well on his the physical side of things so he was an in incredible shape looked after himself very well um slept a lot recovered well he I would say technically very kind of, you know, that Spanish style goalkeeper, um, you know, very kind of good to watch technically, but had some very solid fundamentals and he kind of had the best of both. He obviously would have had his background playing in Spain when he was younger and whatever coaching he got there. Obviously at Brighton then he would have worked with the kind of the more UK based UK style goalkeeper coaches who you could just see the mix of both. Mentality though as well, like he just loved coming for crosses um, and in League One when you're playing against some, you know, big centre offs, big centre forwards trying to climb up and elbow you. He was just incredible, wanted to make, like, didn't really worry about making mistakes, wanted to try and play out. Rochdale at the time played a really progressive style of football and he was happy. He was more than comfortable trying to play out. And occasionally he made mistakes, but that's, I suppose, why, uh, why Brighton sent him there to kind of learn. But you just knew all the different attributes he had that um, he was going to kick on. That's amazing, Michael. I definitely didn't expect the podcast to start that way, but hey, goalkeeper take us in a different route. But um, I want to, before we dive into this specific study you did about goalkeeping in general, I want to inform the, the listeners out there a little bit about your background. Uh, obviously, you, you've done your studies and you've done a few. You've uh, had a studies you um, published as well, and um, you shared those with, with me and Alex before the podcast. Can you share with the listener a little bit out there um, what made you not only start studying goalkeeping in, in general, but where your interest comes from. Yeah, so look, I'm, I should have started the fact I am a goalkeeper, well, former, haven't played in a while, don't fully consider myself retired, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty much retired now, coach a bit. Um, growing up, I would have played in goal. I played, obviously, football, soccer, as we know it. And alongside that, I played the Irish national sport called Gaelic football, which for those who haven't seen it, it's like a more violent version of football. Uh, it's something between rugby and traditional football. It's um, 
yeah, very physical games. Well, I played in goal in the two of them growing up. And when I hit kind of 16, 17, when friends of mine and teammates were all going to the UK to sign for clubs, I got um I wanted to finish my education and I got an opportunity to play at an inter-county level in Gaelic football, um, which is the highest an amateur sport, but it's the highest honor you can get. So I stopped playing football, went to play Gaelic football, and um did that for three years, two, three years. So from 17 right through to 20, I didn't play much football really. And then um decided I want to get back in. I kind of got to university, kind of, you know, so I want to start playing in goal properly again and playing football. So um I was training on my own a lot. Couldn't get a club initially, even amateur teams didn't have goalkeeper coaches. So I was having to do a lot of self-learning, a lot of reps against a wall, a lot of kind of you know analyzing keepers and their styles and techniques. I would have thought it would have translated much easier from one sport to the other, but the reality is it didn't. And um kind of selfishly, I was looking to improve. So I was looking for studies, looking for, you know, any good thing, any little kind of nugget I could find to just get that extra one percent. And there was nothing, there was very little there. So um I just said that when I was in a position to do some research, which for my undergrad, my thesis I was, I'd uh, I do it on goalkeepers and trying to figure out something about goalkeeping, try and unravel the mystery and see uh see how we can help people, I suppose. Awesome, Michael. And um, the article and the study we're going to dive into today is the one where you've studied that goalkeepers perceive the world differently. And let me just share the, the headline here where it says, goalies' brains appear able to merge signals from different senses more quickly. And that's come from research. So I find this very, very interesting that it's not only on the field that goalkeepers act differently, but I guess it's also off the field. So can you share a little bit about how you got into this study and then uh, maybe dive a little bit into the most important aspects within the study too? Yeah, so the study itself, uh, we test a thing called, and I, I will kind of geek out a little bit, so stay with me on this, but we're testing a thing called multisensory integration. So I was very fortunate. Um, the DCU School of Psychology, Dr. David McGovern, he had used this test quite a bit, that tested multisensory integration. Um, they'd shown in elite level musicians that this thing could be measured and it showed that elite level musicians perform better on these kind of tests. Um, they'd done a lot of tests maybe with people with Alzheimer's, autism. And we just thought, look, let's try it with uh, with goalkeepers and outfielders, professional footballers compared to kind of um, lay people or people who've never played elite sport. Um, the only reason we really changed between goalkeepers and outfielders was just because we said, why not? There might be something there. Um, so basically... The test we have, so obviously you've got different sensory info coming at you all the time as a goalkeeper, as a person anyway, it's your, your visual, your auditory, tactile, whatever it is. What our test, um, I suppose, tested for or looked at was your ability to integrate the information from the different senses and kind of still understand that they're not related. So our test, I'd love to say it was something really complicated and there was footballs flying and a chamber with all this stuff. Sadly, it was sitting in a dark room with a laptop in front of you and you're staring at a blank screen, a black screen, and you either see one flash or two flashes, a little circle in the middle of the screen, and that's paired with either one beep or two beeps. So when it's synchronous or when it's one flash and one beep, so the same thing, easy. Two flashes, two beeps, easy. You know exactly what you're seeing. So you can report and say, I've seen one flash or I've seen two flashes. When we started messing with it a little bit though, is when we might pair one flash with two beeps and Obviously, if those beeps were a second or two apart, you'd know that um, you know you only saw one flash. But there comes a point for everyone where when you pair it really tight, your brain actually gets tricked into thinking it's seeing two flashes because it can't differentiate what it's seeing from what it's hearing all that well. 
So lay people, people who never played elite level sport, they performed the worst. They got fooled by this test much easier. Outfield players were next up. They were somewhere kind of in the middle. They did a pretty good job. Um, but goalkeepers, in truth, at the 20 keepers, I think something like 11 of them didn't actually get tricked at all. Um, now, it was a torture of a study to take and to be kind of a participant on. Um, I, I can't remember if I got you guys to do it or not, but it was awful. A lot of people still aren't talking to me for the 45 minutes of their lives. They'll never get back. But um, yeah. I, I think I did it. It was a while back, right? Yeah. Like COVID 20. time. Yeah, 2020, 2021. That was um kind of my final year research. Oh, for yeah. I remember that was quite annoying from what I remember. Like, I was annoyed with it, but it was also interesting to try. Um, yeah, it was um definitely interesting to try. And hopefully, I was one of the 11 goalkeepers that wasn't fixed, but probably I was because I mean, he was on a computer doing COVID, so you would get bored pretty easily over time. <laughs> Yeah, so exactly that. And I'm glad you're still speaking to me, by the way. You're one of the few who are. Uh, I forgot <laughs> until you reminded me now, but so we'll see. I think see. you tried to block it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the test. That was the experiment we did. We just found goalkeepers had this kind of incredible ability to differentiate what they're seeing from what they're hearing. Now, that might sound like there's no application there or that's just a cool fun fact to have. Um, but it's quite an interesting storyline behind it or it tells us quite a lot. So there's two, our data, I need to say, doesn't speak to why this is the case. We can only speculate to that. But we have the next study that's coming out will hopefully kind of answer that question better. But what we believe, there's two schools of thought. One is people with this incredible ability to differentiate those sensory inputs in their head, that they just gravitate towards playing in goal. Um, that's one school of thought. A little bit of weight to it. I wouldn't say there's much, really. The reason we believe it is, is that we believe goalkeepers had this ability is to do with the training and to do with the years and years of constantly trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. So, you know, as a goalkeeper, you know, you're just constantly trying to predict what's going to happen next, reading the patterns of play, adjusting your positioning, talking to your defenders in front of you. You're not falling for the fake shot. You're not, you know what I mean? You're just always, also you're listening to the strike. So in golf, um, you blindfold a golfer and get them to get someone to hit a shot in front of them they can tell by the noise elite level golfer can tell by the noise of the ball being struck whether it was a good or bad shot um the goalkeeper's the same when it comes to shots coming at you from 25 yards you know just from the noise of it even without consciously processing that whether this thing is coming at me at 100 miles an hour or this thing maybe is just going to be a bit of a floaty kind of a thing um so yeah that's where we think it's come from is these years of training years of I suppose, yeah, doing a pretty unique job as a goalkeeper. And um, that's where we see it being um, a promising avenue. I think down the line, something like this will be a great test for match fitness for goalkeepers. Obviously, match fitness for outfield players can be quite easily measured, some of the metrics they have. But for goalkeepers, it's a little bit different. So um, I think this kind of idea of match sharpness, that's where this stuff uh, is probably heading. Sounds really interesting. And from what I saw on LinkedIn, I think you you shared that you were on some pretty prick Pretty big, what channel channels? Where did it where did it get shared? Where can people find this? Yeah, this? so um, it's the study itself was published in Current Biology. Who you know, I'm still kind of in shock they took us in truth. Um, so that's the the academic journal. If you want to kind of have a read of the uh, the full study, I wouldn't recommend it in truth. But uh, if you you know if you want to have a look at it, by all means. Um, so we did following up, we did a quick press release with DCU just in case it got picked up. We thought maybe there'd be a bit of interest in the goalkeeping community. And within an hour of the study being published, uh, The Guardian had published a big piece on it. Um, so The Guardian, um, I think about 300 different news and media outlets picked it up. Um, I did a small video on my LinkedIn that you can see. But um, 
Yeah, grass, a lot of coverage, went talk sports. There was a lot of different kind of um, outlets that covered it. I think, look, it's a unique story. It's interesting. It's a fun headline for people to read. But the reality is um, we're also quite proud of it because we believe it's kind of some groundbreaking stuff for uh, for future research, obviously, with the idea of helping us understand uh, this uh, brilliant position we play. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's really interesting, and I, d- I haven't followed as much as as I probably should have since I took the test. But uh, but yeah, brilliant that you made it that far with this uh, channel and so on. And how um, okay, this might be a tough question. How would you incorporate these tests into to kind of drills? Because I know I've seen a lot with right now down here in uh, in Rome. We have this. You know the the rebounder you hold in your hands, but this one it's called a sniper, and then there is lights and sound that you can use within this. Yeah. So I think in terms of incorporating it at the moment, it's a bit of a measurement, really. It's a way of benchmarking where someone's at. Is what I and now again, this is um putting a formal shape on this and understanding that there's a lot of work to be done there. But it just it gives you an indication of how someone's kind of perceiving and understanding things. Now, we need to break that down further and further. And there's a lot of work going on to do that. Um, but I think it will get to the point personally where instead of it maybe being incorporated into drills, and I think that will be part of it, too. I think the neuroscience tools are getting there. And, you know, you've seen these kind of things before, the use of virtual reality, all that stuff to help with training. But I more so think from the kind of sports science and, you know, rehabilitation health wise, that's where I can see it being particularly useful is you know, if a goalkeeping coach, players come back from an injury, the goalkeeping coach isn't too sure, he's training well, but doesn't know if he's going to be match fit. He can run him through all these tests. The sports science department gets them to do them. And um, now you have a clear kind of idea that, yeah, once they're capable of scoring well on this, then they're going to be match fit. 100%. And um, I wanted to dive into the quote. So you obviously just mentioned that it was published in the Guardian, and that's the article I I read before this the podcast as well, and and that's the the article I have in my hand right here. And the quote that stands out to me is, is something you said. Um, so I assume that the one that wrote this article wanted the statement from you or a little quote. So what you're saying in it is that unlike other football players, goalkeepers are required to make thousands of very fast decisions based on limited or incomplete sensory information. So I want to dive a little bit into that because I th- find it very in- interesting that you say unlimited or incomplete sensory informations. So us as goalkeepers, we have to make a split decision, right? We don't have to think twice about it because if we think twice or second guess our decisions, that's when mistakes start to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're saying this in your quote about limited or incomplete sensory information, what do you exactly mean by that? Yeah, so I suppose, look, um, we don't know the intention or the outcome of what's coming next. It's very, very hard for us to anticipate what's going to happen. Um, we're talking strictly in a shot-stopping scenario, for example. But if we take penalty kicks, because they're the cleanest ones to kind of analyze, um, and there's great research out there uh, at the moment, and stuff to probably have a look at as well, if you're interested in this kind of field, is the idea that there's different kind of cues or different um, things that you can try and read where the penalty ticket is going to go at different stages of the penalty. So when someone's placed the ball down, they've stepped all the way back, they're about to take the run up and they look to a corner. 
probably not that accurate really they could be giving you the eyes that you know you never know so that's it's not really a reliable one as they run up maybe the angle and the arc of their run up um again it's a bit more predictable it's a bit more reliable than the eyes thing but it's not great the most kind of how do i put this reliable or accurate test on that is actually the direction of the plant foot so where that plant foot is facing is usually the reliable one the kicker with that though is we can't consciously process that because it's so late in the movement that if you were to consciously watch first, the ball will be past you before you even initiate a dive. So elite level goalkeepers wait until that very last moment, basically subconsciously. And that's how they process and make a save. Whereas lower league keepers or lower level goalkeepers go by the eyes, they go by the run up, whatever it is. Um, that's what it is. We don't know where it's going to go. We aren't getting the full picture. Also, you know, another example of this would be We've all done those small sided games where it's the big goals and they're 30 yards away from each other and there's just bodies everywhere and there's balls flying and the ball goes in this way and then teams go the other way. You're getting shots through bodies. You can't see anybody. You know, maybe one of your defenders is covering part of the goal and he puts it through the legs. You're never getting, it's rare we get a very clear, crisp idea of what's going to happen next. So I think it's being exposed and immersed in that environment is what, uh, what really kind of trains goalkeepers in their brains to perceive things that bit differently. Gotcha. And that's, I mean, that's why I find this very interesting. And, and in the first place, obviously, Michael, that's why we, we appreciate having you back, you know, to share this kind of information. And I find the, the example you just provided us with the, the small sided, because uh, actually in, in college here, that's something we do on a regular basis. And I don't think it's only in college. I think that's something all over the world. It's, it's a drill where there is a lot of action. There is a lot of action for the goalkeepers. And as you said, like most times we have no time to react. You know, we have, again, limited or incomplete sensory information and we have to go by by our instinct, you know? And I think, don't get me wrong, that's that's a big part of goalkeeping. That you have to go by instinct, you know? You can stand there and when did chance happen? You can analyze, oh, last time you did this, this and that. That's something you already have incorporated in your brain. That's something you already thought about. And that's when you have to make the decision upon that. And that's, Again, not something you can put down on paper and then next time that striker comes to watch you like the last time, oh, he's going to do it this time. That's something you already have, again, incorporated up there. So um, if we go back to what Alex also mentioned um, in the middle of the podcast, if you want to apply that, not only we have a lot of goalkeeper coaches uh, listening to this podcast, but also younger goalkeepers and, and older goalkeepers, if you want to incorporate and it's something you want to work on, um what kind of kind of drills would you would you provide or, or suggest because i know that something that i've benefited a lot of a lot from is uh cognitive um drills where let me just provide an example it could be it could be simple volleys but you have a square of cones and all four cones have a different color right and uh, the goalkeeper coach say red blue yellow and then you have to go in that trust the cones because that's something you you process up there right and then you go into take the simple body that's not the main idea behind the drill the main idea is your thought process in the drill so is that something you would you would suggest as well yeah i think um they're great and it's you know obviously uh getting you to think and those kind of stuff they do help um i think it's in its infancy in truth what we you know the application of cognitive neuroscience to uh to training i think it's in its infancy we're only really starting to learn a lot more about it um a couple of things if you're looking to improve this kind of sensory info so just 
specifically on that cognitive stuff and on that kind of being switched on, you can do it with your distribution too. I have my goalkeepers in Gaelic football where the kick out is kind of like a quarterback. It's how you start all your attacks. Um, you We would have, let's say, three players, one on one sideline, one on the other, and then one on the halfway line down the centre. And instead of us running and calling for it or me telling him you need to go left or right, it, we all either hold one hand, two hands, or no hands up. And whatever, so let's say there's three of us, which means there's potentially six hands or no hands up in the air, or one, two, three, four, whatever way you want to look at us. If that total number is an odd number, he has to kick to his left. If it's an even number, it kicks to his right. And if it's either one or five, let's say, he has to kick straight down the middle. Something like that, just to create that kind of situational pressure of in a game, oh, well, hang on, they've got that really big centre-half that if a kick on top of him, he's just going to win. And their left-back is actually struggling a bit. He's getting burned for pace. I'm going to clip it down that channel instead. These kind of ideas that just force you to practice it. In terms of applying this sensory processing and this kind of improved, um, I suppose, cognition in that sense, strictly in relation to goalkeeping, I think that's where it's really important to have the element of chaos, the element of, you know, conceding goals and training. It's, uh, it's not something any of us like doing. I can say that definitely for myself. I wasn't brilliant at, uh, you know, accepting when my goals went in, especially when my goalkeeper coach was scoring on me. But I think a lot of goalkeeper coaching can be like a dance routine at times. It can be, here's your 10 volleys, here's your 10 dips, here's your 10, you know, whatever it might be, dives to your left, dives to your right. I think that's great. And there's a place for that kind of muscle memory and the repetition of technique. I'm not knocking that at all. It's huge. But I also think coming up to game day and coming up to when you need them to be sharp and at their best, that element of chaos where it's different types of strikes. So instead of them getting 10 volleys, maybe you're hitting a few off the floor, a few half volleys, if you're your left foot, it's because them awkward slow balls that knuckle a bit can be even harder to deal with. Um, that's the kind of thing I think that makes a big difference. And game-related scenarios, get them good at you know dealing with cutbacks and getting their eyes to read the play quicker rather than these slow ones that we do in our own training at times. Um, yeah, I think the more game-realistic we make it, the more physically and technically, sorry, mentally challenging as well, um, the better. It just sharpens us and uh, makes makes goalkeepers better at what they do. Spot on. I mean, game scenarios is what we want to practice because at the end of the day, games are where we're going we're gonna to perform and that's where it really matters. Um, I want to dive a little bit into, obviously, the Gaelic side of it too because uh, not only where you're from, but also your past it's always something that's that's big in your culture, you know? So for the people not knowing the sport out there, can you first of all just explain it quick? I know I, I played with um, a lot of Irish guys at my, at my first school here in um, here in the US, Davenport University, and six of, six of them. And um, that was something they would they would love to do as, as a little warm-up, you know, as a little fun game. But um, if you... Firstly, just explain to listeners out there what it is and then maybe how it's benefited you as a as a football goalkeeper, but also how it it maybe changed your perspective on a, on a few things. Because I know that when you play dual sports, when you play different sports at the same time, you have a different perspective on it and you might have some advantages having played another sport than people that only play one specific sport. Yeah, so it's Gaelic football. It's a national sport. Um so it's 15 players. Everyone can use their hands. Um, you can run up to four steps before you either have to bounce the ball or solo it. So like do one keep you up back into your hands on the run. It's rugby goals with the lower crossbar. So the same height as a football crossbar. And uh, over the bar is one point, in the net is three. But it's 15 aside. It's very physical. Um, it's you know often not played. It's a community thing as well. So you play for your area. So for example, I'm in Kildare. I'm in a place called Straffan, a village. 
And that's who I play Gaelic football for. I don't play for the bigger team down the road. I have to play for where I'm from. It's totally amateur. No one gets paid. Um, people do get looked after, obviously, with college, with scholarships, whatever it might be. But there's no um, financial reward for playing as such. And you represent your county, a bit like cricket in England. If you do well, your county team picks you. And that's kind of the highest honour you can get. Um, we are national stadium. Like It's a bit bizarre, but on a Sunday, for example, you could play in a national stadium in front of 82,000 people. And Monday morning, you're back to work, working as a teacher, a doctor, a farmer, whatever it might be. So it's um, it's a kind of a different sport. So that's just a little overview of what it is. The goalkeeping position, that's quite unique. So... Goal, so restarts, kickouts, um, they're huge. They're the cornerstone of every good team. They're literally, it's like the quarterback throwing football. You just start every attack from there. Um, high balls are a big thing. So the strikers or forwards, as they're called in football, they'll oftentimes put the big man on the square, as it's known here. Um, we'll have some six foot five monster of a man standing on your toes and balls are just going to be pumped in on top of both your heads and you have to learn to compete and deal with it. For that side, I think it's fantastic for goalkeeping. I think the skills you learn in terms of bravery, obviously people are kicking the ball out of their hands, often from point blank. So you can't get out of the way. There's no way of um, you know not spreading yourself. A bit like handball, Olympic handball. You just have to learn to make yourself big, learn to um, yeah. you know, flick your hands quickly. The flip side is, though, it's a different football. The football is a leather ball that's been used for the last 60 years. So it travels a lot slower, but the impact is much harder. So it doesn't knuckle like our footballs do. They don't have weird swerves or anything like that. It gets very heavy in the winter when it's full of water. Um, so that's where I think there can be a struggle because you're used to, obviously it's great, you have the application, but the ball travels totally different. So I remember when I made my first transition back, I was training with the club here in Ireland and um, this midfielder hit this knuckleball shot from 30 yards. And I remember my head going, I don't think I even saw that. Like that thing was just past me like a missile. So... There's that side of it too. Also, footwork can be an issue. You're playing on very heavy pitches. Obviously, there's no need to play out from the back. Um, physically, it tends to be a bit heavier set when you play Gaelic football because you need that bit more bulk. So it can be tough to transition across because of that. You can find you're a bit slower, whatever else. But um, I do think it has a lot of benefits. And I'd be a big advocate of anybody playing any of the sport. Basketball, I know, as we said, Roberto Sanchez earlier, harped on about him, but he was a basketball player and he was younger. Um, I know a lot of guys in the UK play cricket. I know handball, obviously, in, uh, in Denmark and kind of countries in that part of the world is quite big. I couldn't, if there's any young goalkeepers playing, I it's something I was lucky to do. I didn't specialise too young, but um, I wish I'd done even more. I wish I'd played things like tennis in the summer. Um, any sport that involves that kind of coordination or a ball, I just, I think is uh, fantastic. It sounds really interesting. And uh, I like the fact that you sometimes have played like what in front of 82,000 and then... Back to work. Back <laughs> no, I to work like, Monday. <laughs> um, I was on the bench for most of it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But it makes sense with um with uh, the I saw you working with uh, Monday GK with side volleys and so on. And that's and kick kickouts is that from the hand or the ground? Kickouts from like a restart. goal kicks. So, yeah, yeah, goal kicks are off the ground. Um, and then during the game, you're kicking out of your hands as well. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I have to look this up some more. Uh, it's uh. You think there's a bar in Rome where they sometimes show Gaelic football? <laughs> Maybe. I can ask. I'll send you on some clips later, yeah. All right, yeah, great. Great, great. All right, so um, I know that you once tried to make your gloves yourself. I tried a pair. Uh, they were too big, uh, but you sent me one pair anyways. Um, 
I gave them to my friend and they said they're actually all right. So, so how is, are you still, uh, yeah, surprising answer. Um, are, are you still uh, in that little business or, or what are you playing with as a Gaelic football goalkeeper? Yeah, so in obviously Gaelic football goalkeepers do wear gloves. Outfield players wear gloves as well sometimes in the weather. They're real skinny, thin ones, cheap kind mm-hmm. of latex typically. Um, like no, American football of, players? Outfield players? Kind of, but with like okay. real thin, super soft latex or aqua okay. latex, like two okay. millimeters. Um, okay. They're very light backhand. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I no, nothing to do with gloves anymore, thankfully. Um, tried making my own and realized that uh, very quickly. It wasn't um wasn't something I particularly wanted to pursue. Um, it's just a lot of work, and like it just shows. Like I would have done quite a bit of work with Caliar towards the end, Kenny Arthur, and like mm-hmm. it just shows how good of a job they're doing to produce the quality they produce and to get it as consistent and um you know to keep up as well because it's such a fast moving market. You know, it is. Everybody's doing each other like the same things. Everyone's copying each other's cuts, and there's new latex every other year coming out, and obviously. The other thing as well is the football changes every league you play and everywhere you go every season, they change the football. Um, so it's hard to find a pair that are going to work great with maybe a Nike ball and then an Adidas ball and a Puma ball and the latex, the grip, the kind of the coating on the ball is just totally different. So um, I think, yeah, it's an interesting one. It's one I definitely don't want to get back into anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I understand but I yeah. understand it's uh and, and everybody now wearing uh, long uh, rubber gloves uh to your elbow and I am I'm I haven't I've tried a few and I'm not a fan uh I, I like a classic glove as you can say in that sense yeah maybe the exact same look I've uh, my fingers are all pointing in different directions I've actually got to the point now where I'm wearing a uh, finger save whenever I play so oh okay yeah I've got, yeah I'm a freaky old man uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no. I uh, I know a guy named Gordon. He also still plays with it, and one of my old keeper colleagues he also plays with it. So uh, I understand. Um, I don't know if we asked this last time, but this is going to be my last question because it is gloves on. Uh, your favorite gloves ever? What were they? Ooh, tell you what, I'm gonna give him another plug. Caliar, the XT cuts. Remember the extension ones, the extra. I never tried it. No. They were amazing. Um. Yeah. I just felt like I had size 15 gloves on all the time, but they fit really well. Um, Was that finger save as well? No, they weren't. Okay. Uh, for my hands, my fingers were all brittle, but uh, mm-hmm. I made my pro debut in a pair of them. Um, just always, always really liked them. So yeah, I have still have a few of them hidden away somewhere in the house that uh, special occasions they might come out. Love it, Michael. And um, before we say thank you, not only to you, but also for the listener that tuned in, we wanna we wanna ask you. We obviously dove into one specific study today, um, which we highly appreciated you sharing some some context. Um, but if you have to pick one specific one of the the studies you have made so far, which one would you say have been been your favorite? Not only to the process of it, but also also the outcome. Which one have been your favorite? I think in truth, the one we covered today. Um, it was obviously. You know, it's been published. It's got quite a lot of um of acclaim out there. It was my first ever study that I had get published academically. And uh, it was a lot of work. Like that study, as Alex said, it was 2020, 2021 when the data was collected. So we've had to work since then to right size and make changes. And there's been a lot involved in that. It's been a great process. Um, we have more stuff in the pipeline at the moment. We've more research coming, hopefully, um, both with that project and others. So there's hopefully some more exciting stuff coming there. But uh, yeah. 
I think in truth, going through the academic route, and that was part of my undergrad in, in DCU, um, that was a little bit torture in truth. <laughs> all the kind of bureaucracy and yellow tape and you know, ethics, approval, all that stuff was quite tough, but it was a great experience. Um, and I definitely will be involved in more research. But yeah, I'm just hopeful. Look, I'm not going to be the only one doing this. Um, I hope that off the back of my research, others challenge it, others do different approaches, some people get inspired and um Look, it's it's all positive for goalkeepers. The more we know about the position, the more research, the more info that's freely available to uh, to help people improve or to understand a little bit better. Um, I think everyone wins. Spot on. I couldn't agree more, Michael. And uh, again, thank you for uh, for taking the time to to share a little bit about not only yourself but also the the interesting study you have made. And it was it was good to have you back on. It's it's been a while and it shouldn't have been that long, but uh, we have you back. Fair play, guys. Thanks, Mill. Just want to say, um, yeah, it's great to see how much you guys have grown over the last few years since. Um, even the background has become a lot more snazzy looking. So fair play. <laughs> Love that. Thank you for listening out there, guys. And to you guys still listening out there, please go follow Gloves on Podcast on your favorite social media, leave a review, and share this with one other goalkeeper for them to keep improving. Catch you on the next episode of Gloves on Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>